Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Nutritional support for critically ill patients is undeniably crucial with the potential to significantly impact patient outcomes. However, the manner in which this nutritional care is provided remains a subject of debate due to conflicting findings and clinical trials. Accurate determination of protein and caloric requirements for parenteral nutrition is imperative. Join pharmacist Brandy Hernandez to review literature comparing ways to determine optimal caloric and protein requirements in critically ill patients. In the world of critical care practice, every moment counts, and we often rely on powerful acronyms to aid us in providing the key principles of care. One such acronym is FASTHUB. It reminds us of the critical care essentials for our patients. But have you ever wondered why F for feeding in FASTHUB is often overlooked yet deserves our full attention? Today, we're going to dive deep into this critical aspect of patient care. As we journey through this presentation, you will discover the compelling reasons why optimizing nutrition in the critically ill can make a profound difference in their outcomes. Let's begin searching for answers on this vital topic. Our learning objectives for today's presentations are as follow. First, we'll explore how to recognize the specific patient characteristics that signal the need for parental nutrition in the critical care environment. Second, we'll delve into the existing body of literature that assesses the various methods for determining caloric requirements in the critically ill. And then lastly, we'll focus on protein requirements for critically ill patients, drawing insights from the available literature. Let's start with a brief overview of parental nutrition. Parental nutrition comprises um, multiple uh, items such as amino acids, carbohydrates, vitamins, and trace elements. For, the, for this presentation, we'll be focusing on the macronutrients that are listed here. And our understanding of them is crucial to grasp how PN sustains and aids in the recovery of critical illness. The first component that I would like to discuss is amino acids, or what we more so call protein. These are important in that they provide calories and support protein synthesis. Next, we have dextrose. Dextrose serves as an energy source to meet our metabolic demands. And then lastly, we have fats. Fats um, provide energy and essential fatty acids, supporting various physiological processes. While parental nutrition has said benefits, they come with their inherent risks or complications. I would like to go ahead and then focus on these three key aspects. Two forms of metabolic Dysregulation include hyperglycemia and hypertriglyceridemia. Hyperglycemia can be seen, but is often mitigated by limiting our dextrose content, avoiding overfeeding, or initiating insulin. Hypertriglyceridemia is then a result of inadequate clearance of fats, although initially reversible can have their detrimental effects. This form of underlying hepatic dysfunction is a common cause of morbidity and mortality in patients receiving more so long-term parental nutrition. Steatosis is common, but in the 
timeframe within one to four weeks of initiating parental nutrition. And although initially reversible, can progress to steatohepatitis, steatosis, and cholecystitis. Lastly, the catheter-related adverse events of PN, such as infection, thrombosis, and thrombophobitis, are seen relatively more frequently and are dependent on the patient population, severity of illness, and type of catheter use. Next, it is important to understand what is going on regarding metabolic response to critical illness. Describing this process, I have an illustration here to aid us in that. We can clearly know or see that critical illness is marked by a significant mobilization of body's calorie reserves through a process known as whole body protein catabolism. During this phase, through the process of glycolysis and proteolysis, as well as lipolysis, we see that muscle glycogen and lipid stores are broken down. Once broken down, and through the process of glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis, we have the production of glucose. Now, although this is a natural process and uh, evolutionary, evolutionary conserved response, it is what allows our stressed or injured individual to generate the necessary needs, energy needs, to not only confront a threat, but to also recover from the initial insults. That granular view of the stress response in then, is then dynamic over time as seen in this overview of the nutritional pathophysiology of critical illness. And we have it stratified by a time modality. So essentially, what I'll be referring to as ICU acute phase will span the duration of one to two days after initial insult. This is the initial stage following a severe in injury. The body, body enters a catabolic state regardless of exogenous nutrition, providing the full nutrition support here can lead to overfeeding as the body is able to generate 50 to 75% of its own needs. Next, we get into the late phase. This marks the phase of transition. Catab catabolism begins to wane and nutritional administration can be increased as recovery begins to delve in. Then we have floor recovery or days eight and beyond. In an ideal scenario, patients transition into an anabolic state, regenerating lost muscle tissue, often due to unresolved issues. Still in the reference of time in the ICU, it is important to know where sources of energy may come from. Overall, we can see that an increase in energy needs is met and increased over time. In the acute phase of illness, we may provide or refer to the initial stepwise process of feeding as trophic feeds. The goal of trophic feeds is it serves as a form of internal nutrition that provides a very small or minimal amounts of nutrition for the purpose of maintaining the health and both the function of the GI tract. In the late phase of illness, we can then advance these internal feeds to meet full energy goals or provide these goals with parental nutrition if the patient is intolerant to internal feeding. Once energy needs are met, the continuous ongoing management and adjustment of protein and caloric requirements are established based on extensive monitoring. After going over the general schema of how energy is provided in the ICU, I would like to discuss some pertinent guideline recommendations that can further solidify our approach to providing nutritional support. The first recommendation touches the timing piece of initiating parental nutrition for the previously well-nourished adult patient that is intolerant to enteral nutrition. Here, we understand that initiating parental nutrition after seven days of inability to obtain adequate enteral nutrition is acceptable. 
Second, we beg to ask the question if either parental nutrition or enteral nutrition is better. Here we understand that if given the same caloric intake by either modality in the first week of critical illness, there is no significant difference in outcomes or harms, deeming both an acceptable option. Third, we must understand that when unable to meet caloric requirements via enteral nutrition solely, providing supplemental nutrition through the parental route to meet our caloric goals has no difference in outcomes when compared to not providing supplemental parental nutrition at all. Although there is a timing component to this recommendation in that supplemental nutrition is not to be initiated prior to day seven of ICU admission, unless the patient is chronically malnourished or receiving home parental nutrition. In this case, parental nutrition given within 24 to 48 hours is acceptable. Now, although it is not an all exhaustive list, we can think of more indications for parental nutrition as contraindications to enteral nutrition. These can be further stratified to relative or absolute contraindication. Relative contraindications to enteral nutrition can include severe hemodynamic instability, ileus, vomiting diarrhea, or upper GI bleed. Absolute contraindications can include a high output fistula, major gastrointestinal ischemia, or bowel obstruction. Overall, we can understand these contraindications to enteral nutrition necessitate the need for parental nutrition because there's an inability to access the gut or absorb nutrients from the gut. So with all the knowledge learned so far, let's apply it to a patient case. I present to you JD. JD is a 55-year-old male, post-op day six from a sigmoid colectomy and complains of worsening abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting before being sent to the ICU for profound hypotension requiring norepinephrine to obtain a MAP greater than 65. As JD has had minimal PO intakes in surgery, the ICU team starts to have discussions about providing JD with nutritional support. Some pertinent findings are that his CT abdominal pelvis comes back and there's evidence of a bowel obstruction. So I want to ask you all this question. What is the most appropriate strategy of providing nutritional support to JD? I think we got a steady response now. So the correct answer is C, start parental nutrition within the next day as JD is about to be seven days out from obtaining adequate nutrition via enteral access. A is incorrect as JD had has a bowel obstruction which is a contraindication to enteral nutrition. B is incorrect as JD has a bowel obstruction which is, serves as a contraindication to enteral nutrition, as well as he is a candidate for nutritional supplementation now or within the next day. D is incorrect as JD is a candidate for nutrition within the next day or within this time frame. As we now have an idea of who a candidate for nutritional support in critical illness may be, the next step is providing support. In su providing support is calculating caloric requirements. There are a multitude of modalities we will discuss, but the first is equation-based caloric estimations. Overall, these equations are used to estimate a patient's resting energy expenditure, or also known as resting metabolic rate. Resting energy expenditure represents the number of calories in an individual's, an individual's body needs to maintain physiological functions while at rest, such as maintaining body temperature, supporting organ function, and sustaining cellular processes. It should be noted that it is hypothesized a patient that is critically ill will have a much different resting energy expenditure than a patient on the floor. With this in mind, developers of these equations formulated these equations on specific study populations, either healthy 
or critically ill, as denoted in the table. Now, although developed in critically ill or a specific study population, it is common to see these that are developed in a healthy population be utilized in the critically ill, but not the opposite, as those developed in the critically ill are specific to those mechanically ventilated. Equations can be further classified as predictive or simplistic. As denoted by the various blue plus signs, predictive equations such as Harris Benedict, Mifflin St. Gior, Irene Jones, and Penn State are more involved as they involve as they utilize components of age, weight, sex, and height. Now we have simplistic equations, such as our simple weight-based equations, which are so simplistic, they only take into consideration a patient's weight and height to essentially calculate a BMI. I will orient you to the table now at the bottom right hand of the screen. These are the BMI categories that are associated with weight-based equations. And I want to go ahead and go through them briefly here. So if you're looking to provide caloric requirements on weight-based nutrition, you'll first wanna look at, look at or calculate the BMI. If a patient's BMI is to be less than 30, you'd want to calculate their calories from a range of 25 to 30 kcals per day, and the weight being actual body weight. Now, if their BMI is 30 to 50, you'd want their caloric requirements to be in the range of 11 to 14 based off actual body weight. Now, not so intuitive, which begs mention, is that the BMI category of greater than 50, their caloric requirements will be within the range of 22 to 25 based off of ideal body weight. Next, there is a novel, rather novel way of calculating caloric requirements through the means of a modality called indirect calorimetry. In short, indirect calorimetry still measures an individual's resting energy expenditure, but does so by analyzing oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production while at rest. While frequently utilized in sequence to a ventilator, as denoted in the picture here, please note that indirect calorimetry can be utilized independent of ventilator use. Some strengths of indirect calorimetry are that they have the potential to be patient-specific, as we are able to adequately monitor them through this modality on a daily basis. It can also then be said that this reflects changes in metabolic status at any given time. It comes with its inherent limitations of cost and complexity, as it costs multiple dollars, hundreds of dollars, as compared to calculating caloric requirements via an equation. But it is important to know that there is poor candidates for indirect calorimetry. These are as listed below and include air leaks, unstable body temperature, variable pH, ventilator use with the FiO2 of greater than 55%, a PEEP of greater than 10, CRT or continuous renal replacement therapy, and ECMO. Now, before we dive into the literature, let's discuss what current guidelines recommend for calculating caloric requirements. As of 2016, the American Society for Parental and Enteral Nutrition and the Society of Critical Care Medicine recommend the use of indirect calorimetry. Now, if we're unable to use indirect calorimetry, predictive or weight-based equations are recommended. Now, this should be noted it's based on very low quality of evidence. The first study we will analyze evaluating indirect calorimetry, sorry. Diving into the literature, let's first have an overview on various studies comparing indirect calorimetry to predictive equations, as seen here. Now this will serve as a broad overview as we'll only go through population, intervention, and conclusion. 
we have these three studies that give a good generalization of what is what data is out there when comparing indirect calorimetry versus predictive equations. The population for the Frankfurt et al. study was in the adult mechanically ventilated, in which they compared the Penn State equation, Irene Jones, Mifflin St. Gior, and Harris Benedict, essentially all predictive equations against each other. And what they concluded is that Penn State most accurately accurate is most accurate if indirect calorimetry is unavailable. And they also noted that through further evaluation, the accuracy of the Penn State equation is about 67% versus Harris-Benedict, which is around 18%. The next study by Sue et al. in 2018 was also within the realm of mechanically ventilated patients. However, they only took into consideration comparing indirect calorimetry versus Harris-Benedict. And overall, they came to the conclusion that Harris-Benedict underestimates the resting energy expenditure of these patients. And overall, we can see that the indirect calorimetry group was able to be provided way more kilocalories per day in comparison to the Harris-Benedict group. Now, lastly, we'll touch on the Morbitzer et al. study in 2020. Again, within the adult mechanically ventilated realm, they compared indirect calorimetry, the Mifflin-Saint-Gior, and Harris-Benedict equation. They saw that large interpatient variability exists among resting energy expenditure calculation. Specifically, they categorized that each predictive equation variability can range from 17 to 29% between patients. The first study we will analyze evaluating indirect calorimetry versus simplistic equations is by Singer et al., known as the Takako study. This was a non-blinded randomized control trial that set to answer the question, does nutritional support guided by indirect calorimetry compared with a weight-based regimen improve survival in critically ill patients. The pertinent inclusion criteria was adult mechanically ventilated patients with an expected ICU stay greater than three days. They then had the pertinent exclusion criteria of things that make patients a poor candidate for indirect calorimetry, included here as far as the FiO2 of greater than 0.6, air leaks through chest strains, inhaled nitrous oxide, and then renal replacement therapy as well. They stratified 56 patients into the indirect calorimetry group and 56 patients into the simplistic equation group, and they calculated it at 25 kcals per kg per day. Their primary outcome was hospital mortality, with their secondary outcomes being length of mechanical ventilation and length of ICU stay. I do want it to be noted that the treatment or caloric requirements were multifaceted and that they were provided by both enteral nutrition and parenteral nutrition if the patient was unable to meet their caloric goal by enteral nutrition. Now, looking at the results of Takako's, we can see that the indirect calorimetry group had a higher provision or higher average of caloric and protein requirements in comparison to the weight-based group. Hospital mortality had a trend towards a decrease in, in mortality in the indirect calorimetry group, although non-significant. This didn't come at the cost, however, of an increased length of stay and longer duration of mechanical ventilation in the indirect calorimetry group that was statistically significant. The EICU trial by Allingstrup also investigated indirect calorimetry versus simplistic equations. This was a randomized control trial set to answer the question of, does early goal-directed nutrition provided by indirect calorimetry during ICU stay result in improved quality of life at six months? The pertinent inclusion criteria included adult mechanically ventilated patients with an expected ICU stay of greater than three days. Their exclusion criteria more so did not include 
or um, stratify based on poor candidates of interferometry, but more so if the patients had burns, a TBI, or a, a BMI of less than or equal to 17, or severe malnutrition. In this study, 102 patients were stratified to the indirect calorimetry group, while 101 were stratified to simplistic equations. Their caloric requirements were based on 25 kcals per kg per day. For their primary outcome, they looked at a scoring system called the phys Physical Component Summary Score, and it's a method to estimate health status. It ranges from 0 to 100, with a higher score representing better health state. Their secondary outcomes then included day 28, 90, and six-month mortality, as well as cumulative energy balance. Like the other study, they had a mixed provision of caloric requirements based on enteral nutrition and parental nutrition, in which if the patient was unable to meet their caloric goal or was in a caloric deficit by day seven, they used parental nutrition. The results of EICU then provided some valuable insight. When looking at the cumulative energy balance, that is the difference in caloric requirements calculated versus actual caloric requirements provided, we see a larger deficit in the weight-based group, showing lack of obtaining the adequate caloric goal when compared to indirect calorimetry. And we could see these stratified by day of one, three, and seven, which was statistically significant. As far as primary and secondary outcomes, there was no statistically significant difference between a PCS score and mortality at any point in time between the two groups. Now let's return to our patient case. JD is now status post day seven from a sigmoid colectomy in the ICU. He remains on pressors, has an SpO2 of 98% on room air, and started on antibiotics. He has also developed an AKI, but is not requiring renal replacement therapy. The team has decided to start parental nutrition tonight while determining management of his bowel obstruction. As it is pertinent to this case, his BMI is 36. Now, I ask the question, what method for determining caloric requirements would you use for JD? I think that is adequate time for this question to be answered. And the correct answer is indirect calorimetry. This is because B is incorrect and that with a BMI of 32, his actual caloric requirements based on the simplistic equation would be in the range of 11 to 14 kcals per day, per kg per day. C is incorrect as the Penn State equation, as mentioned before, requires the patient to be mechanically ventilated. And option D is incorrect as literature suggests Harris-Benedict to underestimate the resting energy expenditure and has poor accuracy. The overarching conclusion or takeaway we can gain from the literature is that the use of indirect calorimetry gives more opportunity or ability to achieve our caloric goals. That being said, I agree with the ASPEN and SCCM guidelines in that indirect calorimetry should be utilized to estimate resting energy expenditure in the critically ill. If unavailable or criteria for poor candidacy exists as listed here, I recommend the Penn State equation or simplistic equation. Lastly, as a reminder, it is crucial that regardless of measuring measurement modality, we remember to include calories from other sources our proteins in the critically ill setting may be receiving, such as the commonly used propofol. Now let's shift our focus to protein requirements. As of 2016, the ASPEN and SCCM guidelines recommend that for parenteral and enteral nutrition, protein provision be provided in the range of 1.2 to 2 grams per kg per day. 
Again, this is based on low quality evidence. The first trial we will discuss for protein requirements in the protein requirements section is the effort protein trial by Hayland et al. This was a single blind randomized set trial set forth to ask the question of, in the critically ill, does a higher protein provision compared to the usual protein provision improve time to discharge alive from the hospital and up to 60 days? Their pertinent inclusion criteria was adult patients expected to remain mechanically ventilated for at least 48 hours and have one nutritional risk factor. And those risk factors are mentioned in the table in the right-hand corner. Now, to meet one of this nutritional risk factor, they took into consideration low or high BMI, moderate to severe malnutrition, what they didn't, which they didn't adequately describe, clinical frailty score greater than or equal to five, a sarcopenia score greater than four, as well as a projected duration of mechanical ventilation greater than or equal to four days. Pertinent exclusion criteria is listed here, but includes pregnancy, 96 continuous hours on mechanical ventilation before screening, and then the requirement to only need <clears throat> nutrition through the parenteral route only. They stratified a high-dose protein group as greater than or equal to 2.2 grams per kick per day, as well as the usual dose protein less than or equal to 1.2 grams per kick per day. The primary outcome that they looked at was time to discharge a life from hospital, and their secondary outcome was 60-day mortality. There was no statistic. Now, when looking at the results in the high dose protein group, they got an average of about 2.2 grams per kg per day. Now, the usual dose protein averaged about 1.2 grams per kg per day. When looking at the outcomes, there was no statistical difference of live hospital discharge and no significant difference between groups regarding the secondary endpoint of 60 day mortality. But a significant finding comes from a subgroup analysis of the effort protein trial. The subgroup analysis was specific to those with AKI at baseline or a SOFA score greater than or equal to nine. A SOFA score is the sequential organ failure assessment score and is a tool used in critical care to assess severity of organ dysfunction. A score greater than nine signifies severe organ dysfunction. When looking at the primary and secondary outcomes within these two groups, we see that those with AKI or high SOFA had worse outcomes in the usual dose, in the higher dose group that was statistically significant. The next study we will analyze is the Nutria 3 trial by Rayner et al. This was an open label randomized control trial that aimed to answer the question if early calorie and protein restriction improved outcomes in the acute phase of severe critical illness. Their pertinent inclusion criteria was adult patients receiving mechanical ventilation, as well as needing vasopressor requirements for shock. Exclusion criteria were pre-existing nutritional need, pregnancy, if they were moribund, or had a do not resuscitate order. And to keep in mind, this was in the acute phase of illness, uh, seven days after ICU admission within that time frame. They stratified them into two groups, their early calorie protein restriction, which was at 6 kcals per, per day, as well as a protein provision of 0.2 to 0.4 grams per kg per day. Their standard calorie protein targets were given 25 kcals per kg per day and 1 to 1.3 grams per kg per day of protein. The primary outcome they looked to assess was 90-day mortality and ICU discharge readiness. The results in this trial show that each arm was able to obtain their said goal. The early group had lower in protein provision versus the standard of care. There was no significant decrease in mortality between groups 
but the early restricted did have an association with the faster recovery or time to readiness for ICU discharge that was statistically significant. Let's turn to our patient case one last time. JD remains in the ICU on pressors with an SpO2 of 98% on room air and started on antibiotics. He also has developed an AKI, but is not requiring renal replacement therapy. His caloric requirements were calculated using indirect calorimetry. Because he is in the acute phase of his critical illness, we are targeting 30 to 50% of his caloric target. With this, I ask you to drop a pin on what protein goal you would target for JD tonight. So with these answers, I agree. And that within the range being broad, it is just important to mitigate or stray away from higher protein provision. So any reference between 1.2 to 1.5 is sufficient. In, uh, in this caloric requirements algorithm or our protein requirements algorithm, we stratified it based on acute phase versus late phase based on the studies. In the acute phase, we would like to recommend that in this acute phase of illness, given that a lot of protein catabolism is occurring, we start at a lower protein goal, about 0.8 to 1.2 grams per kick per day. Now in the late phase, day seven and beyond, as the patient begins to stabilize, we would recommend 1.2 to 2.2 grams per kick per day. Now, the specific patient populations that we have to consider when, when providing protein is in that AKI will need a lower protein provision, while CRT patients will need a higher protein provision. Now, in summary, parental nutrition is vitally for the critically ill patient with contraindications or the inability to obtain adequate nutrition via internal nutrition. In the critically ill, indirect calorimetry is the preferred method for estimating caloric requirements supplemented by predictive equations in suitable cases. In the critically ill, customizing protein provision based on illness phase and renal function proves beneficial. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.